Hello, my name is Mishi Iman, and you're listening to True Crime Aficionados. So, on today's episode, we will discuss the second body find on Taylor Mountain. There are more bones to be found, more teenagers rolling around in the mud looking for body parts. There's explosives, there's witchcraft and wizardry, hot girl summer. (laughs) It's just a fucking shit show. And I would also like to dedicate this episode to Dr. Robert Keppel, Detective Keppel, who unfortunately passed away a few days ago on June 14th, 2021, at the age of 77. It's reported that he was surrounded by his friends and family. And so let's just pour one out for a real one, because he really, really contributed a lot to forensics, to search and rescue, to creating <laughs> the, the tip sheet. And, you know, he did that. He helped us to find Ted Bundy. So thank you, Detective Keppel, RIP, and let's get into it. Dr. Keppel writes, By November 1974, my desk was covered with a dense layer of callback slips, all which it looked exactly alike. There were too many Ted suspects and too many leads to prioritize. We finally minimized this organizational nightmare with our invention of the tip sheet. (laughs) The design of the tip sheet was simple. It contained blocks to check which phase of the investigation the particular tip was about. Like Sammamish, Janice Ott, or Denise Naslin, Ted suspects, VW bugs, Janice Ott's bicycle, additional bone finds, and a miscellaneous category. There was also a space for the full name, address, and telephone number of the caller. There was even a free text area so the message taker could summarize the nature of the information provided by the caller. Now we had a way to prioritize the significance of the call and better relate it to the different cases. This tip sheet was a prototype of clue or lead sheets that would come to be used nationwide in future serial murder investigations. Guys. They meet like a, like a call sheet, like a, take a message. Cause before this, they were dead ass just writing it on slips of paper and like shoving it into the file. Yeah. These people are in charge of finding bodies. <laughs> 1974. They, they did what they had to do. <laughs> All legal assistants across the world are like, sir. <laughs> On Saturday, March 1st, 1975, two students of Green River Community College were working on a forestry survey project on Taylor Mountain in Washington State when they literally stumbled upon a human skull. Taylor Mountain is about 10 miles from the Issaquah hillside where the remains of Janice Ott, Denise Naslin, and an unidentified third person were found in September of 1974. As Detective Keppel and his partner Roger Dunn predicted earlier, they had found another set of skeletal remains related to the TED investigation. Detective Keppel said, Our team's major fear was that the expected body recovery site would be in another jurisdiction, leaving us no control over the crime scene processing and keeping close to the investigation was just out of our hands. We knew from prior experience that other agencies' investigators will pick up just the surface remains and then leave. Our team had developed a unique approach to this investigation, and unless our methods were followed, we were afraid we would never catch this killer. 
it was becoming more clear that this killer wouldn't stop. We had learned from Issaquah that there was a pattern established by small animals when they carry remains along animal trails away from the original dump site where the major decomposition takes place. Animals that tugged away a decomposing skull pulled at the remains as the skull was being dragged along the ground. At Issaquah, some teeth and a mandible, as well as the mass of hair, were dislodged and fell off along the trail. We learned that if we searched in logical directions along known animal trails, after the discovery of the skull, we would discover the dislodged parts. We also had discovered that it's important to sift through the dirt along these animal trails for teeth, bullets, fingernails, and jewelry that had been dislodged from body parts. Human beings are more than stray bits of fingernail, matted hair, and gnawed upon bones, and no one took pleasure in this search to reassemble the victims of the mysterious Ted. Please, everyone, remember that there were teenagers (laughs) doing this. Literal teenagers. So, Detective Keppel and his team were met at Taylor Mountain by the two forestry students. I wonder if they changed their major. And they led the detectives to the location where they discovered this skull. What would you do if you were in the woods and you just like fucking saw a skull? Like, dead ass, what would you do? Instantly, my stupid ass brain was like, oh, TikTok. <laughs> like, obviously not. <laughs> like, I hate that my brain is so social media warped, but like, yeah, like call the police. But then, like, no tea. As a black person, does my black ass want to call the police into the middle of the fucking woods where there's a skull? Like, could I be next? I don't know. I think I would definitely like mark the area, go down to a public space and be like, hey, there's a skull up there, deuces, because I ain't fucking with that. No, not today. You ain't going to be hashtagging saying my goddamn name. (laughs) I digress. The forestry students led Detective Keppel to the location where they found the skull, and he was able to confirm that the skull was, in fact, human. The skull lay on its left side where he could see a massive fracture on the right side of the cranium. At least an 8x4 inch piece of the skull was just gone, missing. 8x4, that's pretty fucking big. And Detective Keppel thought that the crack on this skull could have been caused by the teeth of hungry animals, maybe when they were like biting, like they cracked it. However, they would soon learn that no animal could have done this kind of damage to a human skull. Which, I mean, Ted Bundy was an animal in his own right. (laughs) And the most horrifying thing is they only found a skull there no other bones like literally just a skull so they're like where the fuck is the rest of the body terrifying detective keppel said the detention of the skull contained a pattern of silver fillings that were familiar to me since september 7th we had gathered all the missing persons reports of females throughout washington oregon and british columbia With those records, we had requested the dental charts of each victim. I had memorized the dental work detailed on each 15 of these charts and easily recognized the jawless expression of Brenda Ball. My crude on-site identification was to be confirmed by a forensic odontologist three days later. So to refresh your memory, Brenda Ball is the young woman who disappeared on the 1st of June 1974 from the Flame Tavern And Ted Bundy, in his like third person confession to Stephen Michaud and Hugh Ainsworth, he revealed that this person may have, you know, picked her up from the bar and they may have gone back to his place. 
and he may have had sex with her and then killed her. And then, you know, uh, we learn that he kept her body, her dead body, in his bed for an undetermined number of days, weeks. Who fucking knows? You know what? So Detective Keppel later learned that apparently on the night of her disappearance, Brenda Ball left the Flame Tavern with a Ted lookalike, someone who matched the description that witnesses gave him from the Lake Sammamish like abductions of Janice Ott and Denise Naslin. She apparently left the bar with someone who looked just like this motherfucker. And apparently, guess what? This included a sling on his fucking arm. So she went missing a month prior to the Lake Sammamish abductions. So maybe if they would have, you know, gotten this tip about a dude in a sling, they would have been like, you know, connecting the dots a bit faster. So the next day, the excavation intensified. Six German Shepherd dogs... (laughs) And their handlers and Detective Keppel searched Taylor Mountain looking for other bones. So Detective Keppel recalled, The dog handlers and I decided to split up. We all headed out in different directions, and whoever found the first path was to call out to the others. I had just walked down into a narrow hollow between two hillsides when I heard a handler yell that he had found the marked location about 25 yards away. The darkened forest was so thick that I couldn't see him from where I was standing. As I began to stumble toward the sound of his voice, an unforgiving maple branch smacked my legs out from under me and down I went, face to the ground. With my hands firmly pushing against the wet, slimy leaves, I pushed myself up as far as my knees. My contact lens were a blur. As fate would have it, four feet from my squinting eyes sat another cranium, obviously sun-bleached and clean from exposure to the elements. It had been there a long time. A branch had grown through the opening in the facial bones of the skull. A six-inch radial fracture extended up the center of the skull from its base. Without hesitation, I recognized the brilliant white bridge work of Susan Elaine Rancourt, a co-ed missing since April 17, 1974, from Central Washington State College, which was over 150 miles away. A basic tenet of Crime Investigation 101 was racing through my head. Protect the scene but it was too late. Almost on cue, and certainly by accident, a dog's paw struck the ground and a human jawbone erupted through the leafy surface. I yelled for everyone to stay back, but within a few seconds, another dog walked across the leaves and dislodged another human jawbone. Then, another dog stepped on another mandible. (laughs) In stunned amazement, we all realized that a detailed search of the mountain site was required. At the very least, we had just discovered the remains of two people. <laughs> Can you fucking imagine? This sounds like some cartoon shit. Like one dog steps and boom, a bone pops up. Another dog steps. Oh, another jawbone. Like that is some horrifying. Can you imagine every time someone takes a step, a fucking human remain flies into the air? Like, <laughs> like what is this cartoon? <laughs> like what the fuck? That's horrifying. I hope they have therapy. Jesus. When Detective Keppel told his captain about bones literally flying around, Captain Mackey was super irritated because apparently Lieutenant Dan Sargent, that's his name, Dan Sargent, (laughs) had informed him that the initial discovery of bones was just an isolated incident and that nothing else would be found. 
literally, again, another white man doing the bare fucking minimum while there are missing people waiting to be discovered. So Detective Keppel and his team returned the next day with the ESAR to search the scene. That's the emergency search and rescue. Again, a group of 50 or so teenagers <laughs> who were on their hands and knees in the woods looking for bones. So the searchers, the teenagers, <laughs> conducted a search where they were shoulder to shoulder and sifted through over 2,000 ounces of soil per day for five days. Detective Keppel said that by now, the local ESAR kids were more dedicated and proficient at carefully brushing an area for evidence than a group of excited archaeologists. I mean, I wonder what these kids went on to do with their lives. Oh my God, okay. Okay, so, <laughs> so Dr. Keppel, Detective Keppel says, at 2 p.m. on the third day, searchers, remember they're teenagers, who had begun walking slowly at three-foot intervals on a hillside adjacent to the one where we were finding most of the remains, froze in their tracks. They had come upon a live explosive charge. <laughs> you can't make this shit up. He continues, he says, As I approached the explosive, I could see another group of unexploded large ammunition rounds and rockets. <laughs> rockets the esar team had uncovered a dumping field created by a nearby explosive plant because those are just there employees at the plant had used the forest for their testing grounds they had been informed that we were conducting a ground search in hazardous territory but had failed to offer one word of a warning I was so infuriated that I closed access to the plant until the bomb squad cleared their pyrotechnic litter and our search was completed several days later. The dud rounds were very dangerous and had been strewn over thousands of feet on the hillside. The last thing I needed was for an ESAR kid to blow off a foot while searching. As if our job wasn't difficult enough, now it was highly dangerous too. So guys, <laughs> this fucking, like why are people like this? an explosive plant okay first of all why the fuck is there a plant making explosives one what are you using them for two is this place still operable now three if so what the fuck are they doing now but like you just they literally just used the forest next door as like an explosive testing ground and then just like dipped and fucking forgot about it that there were rockets? He said a rocket. What the? What, did, what does that mean? A rocket? <laughs> like what the fuck? So apparently, no bones other than skull parts were being discovered, which is probably fucking horrifying. After eight days of searching, the search team, the teenagers, found only three skulls, three human jawbones, and a small hair mass. Fucking horrifying. Detective Keppel recalled. Detective Keppel recalled, Theories of intentional decapitation were quickly dismissed by our supervisors because we didn't find the neck vertebra that would have confirmed it. Typically, when a person is intentionally decapitated, the cut is made below the base of the skull because it's relatively easy to sever the vertebrae with an appropriate cutting tool. Thus, neck vertebrae at a site where a skull is found usually indicates that the person was in fact decapitated. For our supervisors, therefore, a lack of neck vertebrae meant no intentional decapitation. 
Although this logic was not infallible, it was often seized upon by police commanders, presumably to avoid undue fear in the community and increase pressure on themselves to find, you know, a quote unquote monster. On the other hand, we were confident that if those vertebrates were once on Taylor Mountain, we would have found them. Which, um, you know, that makes me wonder, where are the vertebra? Where are those bones? Are they at a different place? Are they in his house? Did he keep them as trophies? Don't know. So most of the people in the police department thought that the rest of the skeletons were obviously just outside of their search perimeter. Detective Keppel calls bullshit because based on his crime scene retrieval experience at the Issaquah body dump sites, they would have found other skeletal parts within close proximity of where they found the skulls. He says, what we learned from Issaquah was summarily downplayed. My own theory, considered outrageous, was that for a period of time, the skulls were put someplace else and then brought to Taylor Mountain. And the killer was moving around the body parts of his victims. It seemed as though nobody in the department wanted to consider my theory seriously. Maybe because it gave too much credit to the ability of the killer to manipulate evidence and escape detection. They also probably didn't want to consider what it would take to catch a killer so remorseless that he could handle the body parts of his dead victims long after he had murdered them. Yeah, they were just like literally putting their heads in the sand. Like, no, 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 we don't want to hear it. We don't want to hear it. Like, <sighs> so once the police realized that only the severed heads of these women had been brought to Taylor Mountain one at a time, over a six-month period, you guessed it, cults, witchcraft, Satanism, hot girl summer. No. <laughs> but like, not that it's a serial killer. They were like, it's a cult, Satanism, witchcraft, it, it, the late, mm, like, or what if it's like the same fucking dude, you know? It's like, hello, you found a body site literally a few miles away, and now you're finding another one, like, within driving distance. Why would you not think that they're fucking linked? No, witchcraft and fucking cults and Satanism. <sighs> so, Captain Herb Swindler was contacted by a psychic <laughs> who convinced him to meet her at dawn on Taylor Mountain. And once there, at dawn on Taylor Mountain, she stabbed the ground with a stick and then tried to ascertain information from the way that it casts shadows. It was creepy, weird, and did nothing to help the investigation. Listen, if mama would have gave them some, some info, fine, but like it seems like she just took him into the woods and put a stick in the ground and was like, look at these shadows, but okay. So after this, <laughs> Captain Swindler was soon flooded with messages from people who claimed to have direct contact with the other side and, you know, all sorts of shit. Even other departments in the police station reached out to Captain Swindler with crimes they thought may have resulted from devil worship. Relax. Like, literally these people are, this is how they're operating a fucking police station. Witchcraft, Satanism, cults, and devil worship. Cults are a thing. They fucking, you know, ruin shit. Hello, Manson family. But like, <laughs> our city's finest. Uh, so when the bro dudes who, you know, believe in the stock market and fantasy football started making fun of Captain Swindler for following these leads, uh, Captain Swindler did remind them of the astrological predictions that had come true on July 14th, which hell's fucking yeah. Anne Rule writes, 
psychiatrists were more inclined to believe that the killer was a man obsessed by a terrible compulsion, a compulsion that forced him to hunt down and kill the same type of woman over and over and over again, and that he could never be able to murder her enough times to find a release. Detective Keppel recalls, Due to the growing intensity of the news coverage of the dump site discovery, I was forced to set up a line across the power line road beyond which no reporter could pass because these people wanted to trample upon a crime scene. I was accustomed to coming out of the woods about every two hours to give them a report. Usually, I really couldn't say much, but I learned 20 different ways to say that we had found more remains. What I didn't want to reveal was that only skull parts were found. The reporters sensed something was awry because we didn't bring many large packages out. I felt so uneasy about this that I started bringing small bones out in large packages so no one would be the wiser. We also had to use different radio codes every day because the media had radio scanners tuned into the ESAR walkie-talkie frequency. It was like a game of spy versus spy. Media, don't blow it. Don't blow it. The remains of four women were identified from Taylor Mountain. Susan Rancourt, who disappeared April 17, 1974, from the library at Central Washington State College. She was the young woman who helped that individual who had like crutches and a briefcase and all that shit dropping his books outside of the library. Kathy Parks, last seen May 5, 1974, at Oregon State University, over 260 miles from Taylor Mountain. She's the young woman who Ted Bundy abducted, uh, sexually assaulted, kept her alive in the back of his car for five fucking hours as he drove back to Washington, sexually assaulted her again, and then killed her. Brenda Ball, who was last seen May 31st, 1974, at the Flame Tavern in Seattle. And again, she's the individual who Ted Bundy picked up from the bar, brought back, had he claims to be consensual sex with her, probably a fucking lie, killed her, kept her dead body in his bed for an undetermined period of time. And lastly, Linda Ann Healy, the first individual that we know of who went missing. She was reported missing from her basement bedroom at the University of Washington on January 31st, 1974. <sighs> on March 10th, 1975, after having spent nearly a full week on Taylor Mountain, Detective Keppel returned to the office and was greeted by his new sergeant, Bob Schmitz. Schmitz informed Detective Keppel that the Seattle and King County Police Homicide Units had combined forces and were working together on the investigation of the Ted murders. They called themselves the Ted Task Force. <laughs> Their office was a 10-foot by 25-foot windowless rectangular room, a.k.a. a prison. They ultimately spent over a year in this tiny-ass windowless fucking office. Detective Keppel says, The newly assembled task force was far better on paper than it actually was because despite the best intentions of everyone, its development was flawed from the start. Sergeant Schmitz himself was an organizational genius. However, he defined his role on the task force too narrowly to be of much help. 
claiming to have been assigned only to organize information previously compiled and not supervise us in tracking down new information, he was a filing clerk rather than a manager and was quick to tell Roger and me that we were still in charge of the investigation proper. No doubt the case files needed to be organized, but we were disappointed that he resisted taking the role of investigative team leader. Try as we might to convince him to coordinate the operation, Schmitz was very strong-willed and assumed only those duties that he felt he should. He would not go beyond organizing the existing files. Okay, this man was their boss. He was literally their sergeant. He was literally in charge of the TED task force. And this man said, no, I'm going to just file paperwork. And they're like, okay, but what should we, what should we do, boss? And he's like, I don't know, but I'm going to be over here with my files. Like, (sighs) so once remains were discovered on Taylor Mountain, the news, the media, it blew up. This caused the TED task force to receive over 500 calls each day from concerned citizens during the first weeks of the task force's creation. Imagine getting over 500 calls a day. My phone rings once and I'm like, who the fuck is calling me? (laughs) You know what I mean? So consequently, this caused the task force to fall way behind on work because as Detective Keppel said, quote, 99% of the telephone calls we received had nothing to do with Ted Bundy. Unbeknownst to us, All of the calls referring to Ted Bundy had been received by October 1974 and had long since been submerged under an ocean of paperwork. In retrospect, we would discover later in the investigation that there was nothing we were doing at that time that would get us closer to Ted Bundy. So hopefully fucking Schmitz, you know, in his organizational filing, uncover something. But as far as information about Ted Bundy, They got everything they needed by October. It's now March and it's buried under, you know, months and months of fucking paperwork. So Dave Workman, editor of a local weekly newspaper, explained that the thought of this Ted being a neighbor, quote, scares people badly. How are you going to know? You might have passed him in the grocery store or met him on the street a hundred times. At the end of the article, A deputy riser recounted coming upon a woman in a disabled car near the site where Denise Naslin and Janice Ott's remains were found. As he pulled up, said the deputy, the stranded woman ran crying from her car and threw her arms around him. God, I'm so glad to see you, she sobbed in hysteria. Don't describe women as being hysterical. Here I am stranded in Ted's country. Unfortunately, these concerns didn't unite the officers in a unified effort to, you know, catch this murderer? No, of course not. These bitches were having a fucking pissing contest because of course. Stephen Michaud writes, the police put a premium on being the agency that broke the case. Thus, the attempt to merge the Seattle and King County investigations creating the TED task force was doomed. It lasted for about a month. One month. Quote, Captain Swindler said, I pulled my guys out of the task force fairly fast. My sergeant came in to me and said, hey, Captain, we're just not accomplishing anything over there. When my men complained to their men that they weren't cooperating, they were told their lieutenant or captain says, they're afraid you might solve this thing before you do. They told us not to tell you. Ladies and gentlemen.
Pew, 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 pew. <laughs> we did it. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, you can check in at True Crime Aficionados on Instagram. You can send any stories about Ted Bundy. Maybe your mom, you know, almost got kidnapped while hitchhiking from Ted Bundy, etc. At True Crime Aficionados at gmail.com. And as always, please stay tuned for next week where Ted Bundy will continue on his fuck shit, still murdering people, women are going missing, and things are starting to pick up real close to this bitch getting arrested. So, you know, stay put. There is a silver lining at the end of this story. Whenever things get dark, just remember he's dead. As always, the sources will be listed below in the show notes. So please check out those books and please, of course, especially pick up The Riverman, Ted Bundy and I Hunt for the Green River Killer by Dr. Keppel. Mimi, my wonderful kitten, has delighted us with her purrs once more. So it's a lovely palate cleanser. Stay tuned to the end and you'll get to hear my little kitten. All right. Thank you so much. And remember, keep your head on the swivel. Bye.